uh, people who've never, who haven't read the book sort of assume that I'm a Luddite, you know, arguing for um, the destruction of all technology and for everyone to churn their own butter or something. And I'm not, you know, I'm actually very pro technology. I, I, I use technology. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, what I'm arguing for is actually um, that we become thoughtful in our usage of technology so that the technology doesn't end up using us. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what we seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos and confusion of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One of the aspects of modern life that we all live in is that we are in what many have called the digital age. We are just saturated in and surrounded by uh, digital media and technology in every single aspect of our lives. And one of those aspects of our life that uh, technology has certainly uh, worked its way into is the church. I got to have a conversation with an author today who has written an excellent book to help us uh, walk through thinking about uh, digital media and how that impacts the church, the way that we think about the church, and so on. His name is Jay Kim, and he has written an excellent book called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. This book that Jay has written is somewhat of a resistance to uh, um, what we've seen recently as uh, as many people have been embracing wholeheartedly um, the the highly saturated technological aspect of our culture today saying that uh online is the future of church or that it can replace the embodied community and so on me and jay got to have a really really interesting conversation i enjoyed getting to talk with him he was a, he was a really great guy um and and had some great uh clear thoughts to help us think through these issues jay kim serves as lead pastor for teaching at westgate church in the Silicon Valley of California. He's the author of Analog Church, and his written work has been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, Relevant, and Outreach. He lives in the Silicon Valley with his wife and two young kids. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you, if you have not yet already, to subscribe to the show, whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else. Whenever you subscribe, it, help, it helps you to uh, make sure you get all future content automatically in your inbox so that you don't miss out on anything that we're doing. Also, if you would like this video, if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. If you're listening on podcasts, if you would leave us a rating and review, it really helps other people to uh, discover this show and benefit from the resources and the biblical worldview that we are trying to offer. Well, without any other delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Jay Kim. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Happy to be on with you. Well, like I was telling you before, I've been looking forward to getting to talk to you. I've been uh, following your book and following you for uh, a while now, ever since I came across it, being someone who is always interested in how technology and the digital life is impacting us uh, as people, communities, churches, and believers, it immediately uh, hooked me, grabbed my attention. So, uh, so I've been looking forward to this. I'm, I'm excited we're getting to talk today. Before we talk about the book, yeah. just tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, what you do, uh, and your background. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, my name is Jay. I, uh, I'm uh, married to my best, best friend, Jenny. Got two little kids, six and three. So we're like right in the throes of, you know, young parenting and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, and then I'm a pastor at a church called Westgate Church. Uh, in right in the heart of Silicon Valley, you know, the tech mecca of the world. And uh, yeah, I've been in local church ministry for, gosh, almost almost 20 years now and worked with, uh, with teenagers, students and college students, and then eventually um, was a part of a church plant and uh, hopped around a little bit. And, and here I am. So there you go. Nothing, nothing overly mm-hmm. exciting. Cool. Yeah. But I, I do think that your, your context and background is interesting because so, uh, wait, so if I got this right, you were, you're born and raised in Silicon Valley, live there now. Is that right? Uh, I, was, I wasn't born here, but I was raised here. Yeah. I moved here like before I can remember, I was really, really young gotcha. and never left. Yeah. So I've lived here for like, you know, almost I don't know, 30 something years, like 36 years or something like that. I've I've been in the Silicon Valley. Okay. Yeah. So, so you spend the majority of your life there. You're living there now and you wrote a book called Analog Church, which is, uh, which is what we're talking about today, which is in, um, which is a, you know, somewhat of a resistance against, um, the over encroachment or over involvement or over influence of, technology in our life. And you write that as somebody living in, as you called it, what did you say? The tech, tech Mecca, uh, yeah, yeah. Whatever. you know, you live in, in the, the tech capital of the country, if not the world. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. how do you think that growing up there, doing ministry there, uh, has influenced your unique perspective, uh, whenever it came to writing this book and maybe it, in, uh, Maybe it had something to do with your motivation too, but you know, do you think that uh, it, it gave you a unique perspective or, or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It's hard to say. I I I can say I have been surrounded not just by technology my entire life, but um, because of where I live, uh, I've been surrounded by people, people in my own family who uh, were behind the scenes of the technologies that so many of us use on a day-to-day basis. So my, I lived with my mom and I, uh, we lived with her sister, my aunt and, and my uncle for a long time when I was a kid. And my uncle worked for, for many years for IBM. Uh, if anybody will, you know, can go back that, that far and Mm -hmm. kind of remember the IBM computer days. So, um, I, I, we had computers all over the house. So I was always fascinated by them, uh, used them a lot growing up. Uh, and then obviously, you know, in the last quarter century or so, the rise of the internet age and, and all that that has brought, I've just, I've been really fascinated by it just naturally of my own accord, but I've also been surrounded for almost the majority of my life by, um, people, family and friends and, um, you know, members of our congregation at church, just, I've been surrounded by people who work in tech and, you know, our church, for example, man, like I would say the majority of the people in our church, either they themselves work in the tech industry or they're one or two degrees of separation removed from someone who does, you know, whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent or something. So yeah, we're surrounded by it. Like my small group, the small group that, that my wife and I are in, 
it's it's seven um, married couples and uh, five of the seven, you know, one of the spouses works in tech and not just any tech working like big tech, you know, yeah. Apple, Google, Facebook, um, Twitter, and all those companies are within driving distance. I, I could get to the main campus of Apple from my front door in about 10 minutes and, you know, the campus of Google in about 15. So like, we're just like right in the center of it. So to answer your question, I think one of the things that that has done over time is it has sort of slowly removed the veneer. You know, I, uh, again, I appreciate technology. Uh, people who've never, who haven't read the book sort of assume that I'm a Luddite, you know, mm-hmm. arguing for um, the destruction of all technology and for everyone to churn their own butter or something. And I'm not, you know, I'm actually very pro technology. I, I, I use technology. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, what I'm arguing for is actually um, that we become thoughtful in our usage of technology so that the technology doesn't end up using us, which it so often does. And I think I got to that place and began asking those questions just because I'm surrounded by people who make the stuff that we use and that often eventually ends up using us, you know, and because of my fascination with it, I, I'm I'm just very curious. So I asked a lot of questions, still do ask a lot of questions about why things get designed the way they get designed. What's the thinking behind it? How, how do these companies monetize, you know, all of these apps that um, are free and I'm using air quotes, you know, yeah. like it's a free app and uh, Tristan Harris, uh, who is a big name and kind of the um, ethics of technology conversation, he says that nothing is free. So if you think an app is free, uh, it, you know, like it's not free. Um, you, you just are the product. That's all. That's mm-hmm. all it means. You think it's free because you're the thing being sold, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I've just been really fascinated by it for a long time. And, and that kind of led to me asking questions about the intersection between digital technology in particular and our ecclesiology, you know, being a pastor who has this fascination that was kind of a natural intersection and uh, thought about it, pondered it and, and talked about it with many friends over several years. And eventually it turned into a book. So, yeah. Yeah. And once again, the book is called analog church, why we need real people, places and things in the digital age. So there's this, uh, there's this contrast being drawn between digital and analog just for people who are, you know, who were born after 2000. Can you explain <laughs> what those words mean? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I think everybody knows digital, you know, uh-huh. the sort of ones and zeros, the code that, uh, you know, all the all the stuff. We, we know digital. Um, by analog, I, analog has, the word has some elasticity of meaning, but I'm just using the word in what I think is the most basic um, sort of foundational way possible. By analog, I just mean, physical, tactile, embodied. The theological word for it would be incarnational, sort of in the flesh. And so by analog church, what I mean is church as a physical, tactile, embodied, incarnational reality, you know, a shoulder to shoulder uh, community of people who really live life together in the most literal, visceral way possible. Um, so, so that's the juxtaposition 
I'm trying to offer people. Uh, between digital, which is by its nature a disembodied, at least in its pure sense, a disembodied reality, uh, versus analog, which is embodied and tactile and physical and, again, incarnational. Yeah. So before we get into the the influence of whether it be positive or negative of uh, uh, of digital media on the church or in the church, uh, let's talk about what is the church then. You said, because you did say that this was all about the intersection of ecclesiology and technology. So I think to understand it well, we need to talk about uh, that ecclesiology part and really make sure we we know what we mean by the church. So in your definition and the way you talk about it, what is the church? Yeah, I mean, the church is um, the gathered people of God. You know, I, I believe that when God saves us, I, I think it through the modern sort of Western lens, we because of how individualistic our, our culture is, how much we value self-sufficiency and autonomy, um, I think most uh, Americans specifically see um, the life of faith as an individual endeavor. So we believe that we are saved as individuals to go to a place called heaven when we die. That's not untrue. It's just incomplete in my estimation. Uh, when God saves us, biblically speaking, it seems pretty clear and emphatic God does not save us individually into heaven. We individually are saved into a family. And that family is the family of God who will, um, you know, uh, worship and uh, uh, co-labor and celebrate and enjoy new heavens and new earth forever. So it's not wrong to say I am individually saved into heaven when I die. That's true. But that's true as a byproduct of a much bigger, much more beautiful, in my opinion, story, which is that God saves lost, broken people into his single family, a family that will uh, thrive and flourish into all of eternity in his presence. So the church is, uh, you know, it's a signpost of that reality. I think that the church is um, sort of a present, contemporary, uh, at, its, at our finest. The church is a present, contemporary sort of gathering of people who embody and, and um, act as a signpost of that reality, that uh, God has a family, and that that family uh, is going to f- enjoy and celebrate and flourish uh, in eternity forever with him. Um, so there you go. That's kind of That's a, good. Yeah, that's good. And I think the key word that you use several times there is gathered, 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 you know, uh, embodied. And so your argument is that whenever we take out the gathered, embodied part of it, we lose something essential about what it means to be the church. Yeah. One thing that you write in the book is and you argue is you say our unchecked pursuit of digital and uh, technological relevance is actually leading to the loss of that which the church has always been able to uniquely offer the world transcendence. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the temptation for for the church has always been to um, mold itself into the shape of culture. So and and it's easy, it's it's easy to understand why we do this. We do it actually most of the time with good intentions. 
We want to be relatable so that those who could care less about God might actually have their interests piqued, you know? So uh, we have, you know, particularly with kind of the rise of um, the megachurch movement, you know, in the last half century or so, there was an entire movement, people are familiar with this, there was an entire movement sort of away from what was deemed unrelatable with, you know, high church experiences and uh, sermons that were too, you know, theologically dense. And there's, you know, there's good arguments for all those things. So we started to see people that I actually quite respect and admire, you know, show up and preach in jeans and sandals and Hawaiian t-shirts. And we were like, man, that's the future, you know, like how refreshing there's a pastor who is not wearing a, a suit and a tie and his church doesn't feel stuffy. And I'm not pinpointing just one church here. I'm just saying the movement was kind of identified this way, you know, and uh, like their church name isn't some weird denom- It's not like first Presbyterian church of San Clemente. It's, you know, whatever church, you know, the rock church or Saddleback or whatever, you know, mosaic, like all yeah. these cool names <laughs> that people are like, wow, it's not like goofy words that no one understands. It's just super relatable. And, the music is hyper relatable and it looks and sounds just like the concert I went to on Friday night, you know, and here I am on Sunday and I can totally relate because I just went to a show just like this two days ago. And so, you know, like, and it wasn't just mega churches, although that the movement sort of defined um, this whole pursuit of relevance, but churches of all sizes have sort of, uh, you know, dove in like head first into this kind of like pursuit of relevance again that's not bad in and of itself i think it's offered us uh some real gifts you know some real gifts to our ecclesiology and certainly the gospel needs to be relatable to people mm-hmm. if the gospel is just kind of like this strange unrelatable sort of like hard to understand thing that exists in you know the academic stratosphere where everyday people can't quite like grasp what you're talking about, then that's ineffective and poor stewardship for sure. But I think our, our pursuit of relevance has sort of gone extreme. You know, we are trying to get our churches, many of us are trying to get our churches to look, sound and feel so very much like culture at large, that culture at large is just swallowing us up. Like if we just look, sound and feel like everything else that everyone experiences Monday to Saturday or whatever, then we're competing at a level um, uh, that that will will lose every time. Mm-hmm. You know, like the church will never be as funny, nor as entertaining, uh, nor as glitzy or glamorous um, as as what culture has to offer. We'll just never, we'll never be able to compete on that level. And the reason is the church is not intended to compete on that level. Mm-hmm. The church, at its finest, at her finest. Over the course of 2,000 years of church history, you see this time and time again throughout church history. The church is most effective when she zigs as the rest of culture zags, and when she zags as the rest of culture zigs. It's those moments when the church leans into, and this is why I use the word transcendence, it's, it's those moments when the church leans into uh, the gift we have to offer the world that nothing else in the world can offer which is the resurrected Christ who rules as king and who by his spirit resides in us and amongst us. And that is a great mystery. And it's supposed to be a great mystery. Um, 
And if our sort of pursuit of relevance is getting in the way of that, of offering the resurrected Christ and his beautiful story to the world in a way that's pure and simple and yet compelling and beautiful and nuanced, then we're going backwards. You know, relevance is not going to get us there. Transcendence, offering people an opportunity to experience something, uh, a reality that they cannot find anywhere else. That I think that is not only the way into the future, but that has always been true of the church. That's always been when the church has been most effective. So uh, there's a lot to say there, obviously, but uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so good. That's so good. I, I just, I can't help but think as you're talking, especially in this, in, in that section there, I can't help but think of, uh, of Neil Postman. Yeah. And amusing ourselves to death. Uh, yes. and I, I didn't, I didn't check your footnotes. I'm sure that you've read Postman and you've read. Yeah. You've yeah. Read, I, yeah. And, uh, I think I quoted Postman a couple of times. Yeah. Book, yeah. Um, but his chapter towards the end of the book on specifically, uh, the church's embrace embracing of, uh, of digital communications media has just essentially turned uh, what's supposed to be, and he doesn't use all these terms, but you know, what's supposed to be like the gospel message into just entertainment. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, like you were saying before, how so many churches and Christian leaders today are chasing after relevance, relevance, relevance. And I think really often if we're being honest, what we're, what they're really just chasing after is entertainment. Yeah. Uh, Because, especially because I think that whenever people, your average American who's just been, especially if they've been born anytime in like the last three decades or so has just grown up in this, uh, entertainment saturated consumer consumerism driven culture. And so we've been taught and conditioned that, you know, those things which are relevant to my life are those things which, um, I can purchase right? Like they're, they're a commodity to me, like, or they're entertaining to me. And so, so often like it in the American frame of mind, relevance and entertainment are the same thing. And so very often I think, yeah, you know, we're, whenever we pursue too much relevance, what we're really just doing is we're trying to make the church more entertaining. And, and I think that's a futile endeavor, just like you were saying. So, yeah. uh, yeah, so much good stuff there. Um, but, but let's just go ahead and keep leaning into that theme and talking about, you know, um, th- there's people who say that online church and the church going uh, uh, leaning more and more into uh, having an online presence is the future of church. And you hear this uh, uh, amplified even more with COVID, you know, w- w- which we're still uh, working our way through. Uh, how do you react to people who, who say these kind of make these kind of statements? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I say is uh, I think that just feels way too monolithic. I think that's a way of looking at the church as a product uh, to be dispersed via the most effective sort of channels, you know? Um, it's It's difficult to say... The future is, first of all, I'm always wary of anybody who says the future is this. I'm just always like, good rule of thumb. Yeah, like, (laughs) what? How do you know? You know, like, I mean, I understand prognostications and projections and all that's important, but especially with the church, I just think there's too many people saying the future of the church is and then filling in the blank with whatever. Um, 
Yeah, you know, my sense is I, I wrote the book before the COVID pandemic, and the COVID pandemic has been interesting because it's done it's done two things simultaneously, which feel paradoxical. On the one hand, it's actually increased my gratitude for digital technology. I think that it's it's probably done that for for others as well. I, I just as a pastor and a church leader, when I think back to the basically the year that we, at least in my part of the country, where we were not allowed to gather in person at all. I think back to that year and I just think, man, if we had not had digital technology, we would have figured out other ways. We would have done like door-to-door visitations and we actually did some of that with six-foot distancing and we would have called people on the phone and we did that as well. But if that's all we had had, man, I just think, oh, we would have we would have missed so much more than we already missed. So in some ways, I'm like, I'm more grateful than I was before the pandemic for Zoom and for online capabilities and all of that. On the other hand, though, and maybe more importantly, what COVID did was it, for me, grounded me even more deeply in my convictions that I share in the book that embodied human beings need embodied human beings. And I don't think it was just me. If the articles I read and the data that I've seen is true, then Zoom fatigue set in in pretty quickly for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see it even now with, you know, concerts coming back and football games and basketball games. You see how many people are going. And depending on the part of the country, some of these venues, they're all wearing masks. Some of them, they're not. But you see how like desperate people are to yeah. like actually be at a thing, to see it for themselves, to be with others, you know, to hear the roar of the crowd or whatever. And uh, I just I, it, that doesn't surprise me. You know, we early on during COVID when everything was shut down, we saw a lot. You know, I read a lot of like alarmist articles about how if your church isn't going all digital now. When, even when COVID is over, your church is going to be dead and gone because digital is the future. It's the wave. All churches are going to be on digital. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, before COVID several years ago, said Facebook is the new church. And what he essentially meant was that uh, Facebook is the place people gather, not your church buildings or whatever. So I think what we're seeing post-pandemic is like the reverse being true. I think a year and a half. Now, it's not that everybody's come back. I know most church leaders listening to this, they're like, well, Jay, I don't think you're right because my church is only like half back and most people are still watching online. That's a different issue. I think that COVID has habituated some people uh, in, in directions where they were already sort of leaning. And there's other things that need to be done there. And I think that's a different conversation. But I think the future is, um, I guess the best way to put it, a lot of people have put it this way, like I do think hybridity is a part of the future. I do think that there are going to be people who lean into online as kind of like their initial experience of a community. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with online being kind of the new front door. I think online is a great front door. But what I say in the book is that online is great for information, but for transformation, we need embodied presence. So uh, 
I do think online is a part of the future. It's not going to go away. But I think if we do this right, it will be a rich, robust, thriving part of the future as a front door, as a sort of informative experience where you can catch a glimpse of what a community is like. But for those who are really, really um, desiring change, transformation, you know, formation into Christ-likeness, then I think inevitably they, they're going to have to find their way into the life of an embodied, gathered community. Mm-hmm. So I do think the future is hybrid in that online and in-person will work together for sure. Uh, but they cannot, and in my opinion, must not work together as sort of co-equals. They, they're much, it's much more like a house. I mean, at my front door, I say hello to my mailman and greet my Amazon delivery guy from time to time. But if someone close to me, a family member uh, or, or a close friend come by, we don't linger at the front door very long. They come, we say hello, and then we make our way together to more comfortable, intimate spaces, you know, the living room and the dining table. And so it is with the church. Uh, everyone, you know, you don't know us. I don't know you. Come linger at the front door. It's safe and there's enough distance. You're not actually in my house. I'd like you in my house, but who knows? Maybe I'm a creeper. Why would you want to walk in my house? So take your time. That's perfectly okay. But yeah. the goal is that eventually we become friends and then eventually we become family. Mm-hmm. And we begin to spend time with one another and again, more connective, intimate spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm right on the same page with you with uh, seeing seeing the value of having an online presence uh, as a new front door. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm definitely on the same page with you there and, and agree. Um, and uh, and how, yeah, we eventually have to move move past that, that front door, right? Um, yeah. Like you said, though, on the, on the other hand, it seems as though um, there's a lot of people who have become uh, like just wanting to wholly embrace it, whether it's church leaders, which, you know, I think kind of taking a step back, I think that, that's part of the, that's why I wanted to start by just saying, what is the church? Because I think that and I'm not I'm not bashing anybody, but I think church leaders who have been saying we just need to fully, wholly embrace this, create whole new departments and pastors of the online experience and, and all these things. I think it just kind of reveals how, and especially how quick they were to embrace it, that they had a very different understanding of what the church is, is all about pre pandemic. That if, if you think that the church can just hop onto online or be an alternate to in person, um, and that that's an absolutely fine long-term option, then I think that what that shows is that to begin with, you saw the church as just a primary like content creation vehicle. Yeah. And that's right. And that's, that's not what it is, it is at all. We, 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 right. we do that as a part, but to serve the purposes like you were talking about earlier, but anyway, but, but and, and then to go back to more on the, on the church member side of it, people who maybe have been much more, who, who dove into it easy and have been much more, hesitant to uh to go back to in person um you know for whatever reasons do you think that our just uh, just broadly as a culture do you think that we would have been as quick to embrace online church and then especially as slow to let go of it if it wouldn't have been for the existence of social media like let's say let's say and i know this is 
a weird hypothetical that all of the uh, like live stream delivery channels still existed, but in some other format that was not a social media format that promised you the ability to connect with others, hmm. you know? Yeah. But because we had this pandemic, you know, um, 15 years after already living in this ecosystem with these apps and, and whatnot that promise you constant uh, and they say true connection with other people. Do you think that we would have been as quick to embrace church and then especially as slow to come back to it? Yeah. So in other words, what do you think yeah. has been this, the effect of social media on us over this past <laughs> year and a half? Yeah. What a great question. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. I, I think it's, I think it's undeniable that social media has formed us as a society and as individuals for sure on a number of levels. Uh, a couple of them being one, the way we, uh, the way we consume content has dr- it's dramatically changed because of social media. Um, and two, the way we think about celebrity has dramatically changed. Mm, yeah. And actually the definition of celebrity has mm-hmm. dramatically changed. Um, and both of those things have affected the church in, again, on a number of levels. So getting to your question, you know, would we have been as quick to embrace kind of the, the emergency protocol of COVID, which was everything streaming online? Um, I don't really have an answer to that. I, I don't know how quickly or or not as quickly we would or would not have embraced that reality had COVID kind of shut us down uh, in a pre-social media world. I, I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know. But what I can say is, what I'm confident of, is that the way we engaged this era of online-only ecclesiology was deeply affected by social media. And, and what I mean by that is we were – it was not – COVID was jarring, but watching – consuming Christian content from the comfort of our own homes, while it was new, it was not jarring. Like even f- physiologically, the way our bodies had to go about it, like watching church was – extremely familiar we were just doing the same physical acts we do when we throw on a movie on netflix or turn on spotify you know yeah um or youtube or what we're like literally just doing the same thing uh that would not have been the case in a pre-social media world or like facebook or or instagram like getting all the info and watching little clips you know and then uh, dangerously because we think about celebrity differently um, you know, church church shopping has always existed. It existed long before the social media age. It existed long before the internet. Church, you know, the concept of church shopping. But again, um, because the way we think about Christian celebrity is or just celebrity has changed, I think even the way we think about what it means to belong to a church, to to attend a church, now to watch a church, to be a part of a church has dramatically shifted. Um, We don't really think of church as a people to whom we belong. We think of it, per your point earlier, 
we think of it primarily, we wouldn't say it this way because it's far too crude, but like really most people think of church as a purveyor of Christian goods and services or Christian content. Mm, yeah. And so as we sort of acquiesce to that sort of marketplace mentality when it comes to church, one of the things I think that COVID did was it turned us all into church shoppers, you know, like in the marketplace of Christian content. Um, and we just started running hard and fast after the latest and greatest Christian celebrity, you know, mm. and it left church pastors, especially like pastors of smaller congregations who've just been faithfully leading and serving their people for many years, it left them like utterly broken. Cause now it's like, Oh, I've been serving this community and doing their weddings and their funerals and everything in between for decades. And now everyone's at home watching Andy Stanley and I love Andy Stanley. So it's not a knock on him, but you know what I'm saying? Like now everyone's, they're, why? Of course, they're going to watch Irwin McManus. Why wouldn't yeah. they? Oh yeah, no. You I know? remember during yeah, whenever we were shut down, uh, I would see my church members on Instagram posting stories of like David Platt on their screen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. and, and that, I'm like, and David, I'm like, okay, guys. <laughs> yeah, and David Platt is awesome, you know. And it really yeah, no, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But nothing is his message. Guy. But you know, I wrote, I wrote a message last week too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The problem is that's not church. Now, that's going to sound weird to people, but I'm telling you, like, that is not church. That's David Platt preaching the gospel, and that's a beautiful thing and a powerful thing, but that's not church. Like, you watching that clip and reposting that clip and clicking the heart button that says like, that is not church. The church is not content, the church is not goods and services. The church is not even really a location or a building or a room. The church is a people. And what I mean by that is because some people hear me say that and they go, oh, see, I caught you. You said the church is not a building or a place. So why can't we do online church? Well, the reason I don't think online church gets at the heart of what the church is, is because, again, the church is a people, like an embodied people, a family. And, you know, the example that makes the most sense to me is when I travel, I'm super grateful for digital technology. I'm super grateful. Like just this past week, I was out of town. So I was so grateful that I was able to FaceTime my wife and my kids, right? Now, I was three hours away from home. Why wouldn't I? And it was a beautiful part of the country, like this lakefront kind of um, cabin. It was beautiful. Amazing. Well. I loved it up there. So why wouldn't I just say, you know what? I love it up here. I'm just going to live here. Like I got FaceTime. I could always just FaceTime my wife and kids. I'll just stay here. They live wherever they live. Like that sounds so ridiculous. Why? Because when it comes to family, it's like digital is really great. It's really helpful. But at its best, what it does is it makes me long for the real thing. Like it makes me long to be with them, to hold them in my real arms And, um, so then people might say, well, like, that's because that's your family, but we're just talking about the church, my local church. Well, it is undeniable that the biblical imagery of the church is family. There were brothers and sisters and the new Testament, the new Testament writers mean that actually quite literally. And there's evidence of that in Paul's writings, especially like how literally he means that. 
And um, so I think that's where the bar has to be set. The church is a family. It's people. It's real people who become a family, who long to be with one another and do life together as families do. Uh, which is why, you know, I don't think the future of the church is online. I think the, the online is going to be a helpful tool, but it is not our future. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, and I think that, yeah, I love, I think that analogy is, is spot on. Like you said, that one of the, uh, not just the family metaphor, but just every metaphor for the church and the new Testament is the, so there's the family one. There is, um, Oh gosh, now I, I can't think of the, the, the reference now, but it, uh, but Paul talks about it. it I call, oh, I'm not even sure it was Paul. <laughs> uh, you know, we are, we are, um, being built like a house, right? Yeah. Um, that's Ephesians two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the second. Yeah, that's, that's the second Ephesians, part of the, yeah, yeah, the second half of Ephesians yeah. two. Yeah, he says that we're being built up like a house, right? Yeah. And so you you can't have a house that is uh, that is a real and stable structure um, being uh, synthetically held together by virtual connections, you know, or or a, or a body in chapter four yeah. of Ephesians. Um, yeah. And, and once again, there, like what, what happens to a body if you start splitting off all the pieces? <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. I, I think that all the metaphors of the church in the new Testament just, just support that point that you, that you were making. Yeah. Um, I think Ephesians yeah. two, when Paul makes that metaphor, you know, one of the things fascinating about it to me, he says, you're not like strangers or foreigners anymore. And then he has this flow of thought and Paul's brilliance. He eventually he essentially says, like, you are citizens and you're a household or a family. Household is another word, mm-hmm. essentially. Households mm-hmm. acted as families. And then you become a temple. And that's what's really profound to me. Like Paul's intentional about the flow. Like, what are citizens? Citizens are people who belong generally to a nation together. Like it is a fairly loose connection. Like I have, you know, as an American citizen, I have like whatever 400 million fellow citizens you know what i mean and then he says you're not just citizens you're a household or a family so in roman households there there would have been you know the actual nuclear family and then um, secondary family and then you know household staff essentially Mm -hmm. you know stewards Mm -hmm. and servants uh who would have all made up the household so maybe there would have been like a dozen you know in the household So like millions to like a dozen in a household. And then he says, you're the temple. And what's really interesting is like not plural temples, like singular, one temple where heaven and earth collide, where God resides. You know, and to me, it strikes me that that flow is very intentional from Paul. He says, you're citizens. There's that's like a lot of people who have a loose affiliation Actually, you're a household. You become a household. So like a much closer, intimate affiliation. And then you're just, you're actually a temple, like one temple, like one temple building. Like at the time in the Jewish mind, when you said temple, you didn't think of like many temples. You just Mm -hmm. thought about one actual place where God resided, heaven and earth meets. Yeah. And I think that's the church. Like we, that's the, that's how high the bar has been set, right? We're not foreigners and strangers just consuming Christian content individually. We're actually citizens of one people, but we're more than that. We're like family. We're a household. 
And actually, we're more than that. As we live that way, we become one thing, like the one thing where God resides, heaven and earth collide. And I think for most Christians today, we stop at foreigners and strangers and dabble in citizenry, you know, and we, we, we fail to become a family and thus fail to become the temple. And um, the digital age has done, done us no favors uh, along those lines. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Whenever you were talking about how uh, doing online church felt like even physiologically and psychologically, it felt the exact same as sitting on to turn on a movie on Netflix. And, uh, you know, and I remember whenever we were uh, watching our own live streams from home, um, I remember that exact same feeling. And you swear you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I do. I remember that feeling. It, it, was, it was odd. And anyway, but whenever you were saying that, it was it, it made me think of the famous statement from uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, that everybody knows, but very few people understand. But where he said the medium is the message. Yeah. What is so whenever we allow online church to be a substitute for the gathered embodiment, um, what is the message of that medium? What what is it telling us and and doing to us in the way that we think about about what the church is? And I know that this is a, a big overlap with everything everything we've been talking about. Yeah. But I think uh, I, I think there's still some more nuance to pull out of it through that lens. Yeah, yeah. Again, we've said this already, but the McLuhan, when you apply that McLuhan philosophy, which I think is true, that the medium is the message, then when you take the church and filter it through the medium of um, digital technology, online technology, you know, the way to understand what McLuhan means there, and this is sort of um, just scratching the surface of what what McLuhan's talking about, Mm -hmm. but one of the ways to think about it is, well, what else do I consume? What else do I use digital digital mediums for? Right? Like what else do I use it for? And, and that is the messaging. That's, that's what the church becomes to us when we experience the church solely through those mediums. So um, essentially, and again, this is rehashing something we've already talked about. When we relegate the church to online mediums only, the church essentially becomes content to consume. It becomes Christian goods and services. And a, a very easy way for me to explain why is, uh, is to think about it this way. When you, when you listen to national Christian leaders, many of whom I respect, um, talk about how digital is the future. And if your church is not going com- like total digital, full on putting all your resources into online stuff, then you're going to be left behind. What you will hear almost all the time is the example of Amazon and bookstores. I've heard it dozens of times on different podcasts. They will always tell you, um, look at what Amazon did to bookstores. Like when's the last time you walked to a Barnes and Noble or or a Borders books or something, right? Amazon put bookstores away and yet we're selling more books than we did in the heyday of the bookstore. Well, one, that data can be debated. But two, um, that would apply to the church if the church was in the business of selling books. But you will notice that you never, ever, ever hear church leaders who are proposing a majority digital approach to ecclesiology make the parallel between online church and hospitals 
or online church and schools. You will never hear them use those as a metaphor. Why? Because we don't relegate our our education. I mean, education, yes. But in terms of like primary schooling, we don't relegate those experiences to online mediums. We, we don't, we prefer not to relegate, you know, our hospital visits to online mediums. Like I would, I would much rather go, I don't like going to the hospital, but if I'm sick, I would much rather go so that my doctor can actually be face to face with me yeah. and like whatever, you know, than like FaceTime with him. Um, so, you know, if you need surgery, what are you going to do? There is not a single app on the planet that could do that surgery for you. You have to go and a skilled surgeon has to physically do the work, you know, but you'll never hear people sort of make those parallels and it's because it doesn't work. <laughs> it, the, the metaphor breaks down, you yeah. know, like that online church just doesn't do that. And yet I would, I would argue that church is much more like a school or a hospital than it is like Amazon or Uber or DoorDash, yeah. you know? It's it's not it's not a purveyor of Christian content and goods and services. It's a school where we collectively learn to become more like Christ together, students of the way of Jesus. It's a hospital where the sick come to receive healing and wholeness. Um, you know, it's a family where yeah. we sit around the dining table and break bread and share our life together in intimate ways. And so we have to be careful if we shove the church into the places of Amazon and Uber and whatever else. And I love those companies and use them all the time. But if we shove the church into those spaces, we're making the church something that it wasn't intended to be. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying that some mega churches uh, are just booksellers for their pastor? <laughs> I went there. Uh, no it's comment. Okay. Yeah. No, no comment. comment. <laughs> I had to, uh, no, I, but I completely agree. You know, uh, a nerdy way that I think about it is that Luke Skywalker couldn't have become a Jedi by FaceTiming Yoda. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and uh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 uh, cause I so often, whenever I think about what discipleship is, I think about the master and apprentice relationship. Um, and so, yeah, man, we, we could just go on and on and on, but we're running out of time. Uh, so real quick before we go, uh, I'll plug the book again, analog church. Why we need real people, places, and things in the digital age. I would highly, highly recommend it. If you guys haven't already ordered it, just while you've been listening to us talk, go order it as soon as we finish here. But Jay, is there anything else you want to point our viewers and listeners to before we go? No, that, that was great. It was lovely talking to you, Aaron. I I, I could talk for hours <laughs> about some of this stuff. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. thanks so much for having me on. It was a real, real joy. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us, man. I appreciate it. Uh, and once again, for those who are listening, uh, I'll have the book and uh, any, any other resources or whatnot that we might have mentioned uh, linked in the show notes so you guys can go find that and, uh, and, and buy Jay's book and uh, check out anything else. So, Jay, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch the latest from me, 
you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.